Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for not just saying you loved us, but for showing it so immensely through your Son, through your sacrifice at the cross, and through the resurrection. That you didn't just love us so far, but you love us eternally. That you would want to spend the rest of eternity with us. Thank you, Father, for such a hope. We praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever had your, your way of thinking, your point of view change on something? We get to about 10 years old or so, or, or, or growing up to be about 10 years, you think, girls are gross. And then you get to be about 18 and you go, hmm, maybe they aren't as gross as I thought. And then you're 21 and, and maybe you see life in a certain way and then you get to 30 and you look back and you go, oh, maybe things are a little different than I thought. Get to be 50, and then it's even different from there, and 60, and so on. We, we grow. Our perspective changes. Our, our, our way of thinking changes as we mature in life. We never really stop, do we? And just as our, our bodies continue to age and mature, hopefully, so do our minds. Hopefully, so does our faith. Uh, in our finiteness, there's always more to learn, isn't there? More to understand, more to know about God and his will, both general and specific for ourselves. God is infinite, without end, without beginning. He's eternal. How can we ever stop learning about him? In our 70 to 100 brief years on this earth, how can we ever really know everything there is to know about God and his will? He being infinite and eternal. God has a will, and it's infinitely perfect. It's good, and it's right. One that is always looking out for our best. One that is always looking out for his greatest glory, which will always be for our greatest good. And just as God has a will, and he created us in his image, we too have wills, don't we? We exercise them all the time. And our wills are utterly depraved and easily misled, aren't they? Usually we find ourselves seeking to fulfill our own narcissistic desires, those things that are going to make me feel good, whatever's going to make me feel right. Even at our best, we fail to match the perfect glory of God. We fall short of that glory. Throughout the book of Acts, we, we've been looking at a church, and it's a church that is growing from infancy into adolescence, perhaps young adulthood. It's a church that is learning to see God's will through the pages of Scripture, listening to the Holy Spirit that is now alive in them, learning how Jesus fulfills the law and moves forward that Abrahamic covenant as the gospel goes out into the whole world to the end of the earth, learning how they must change how they think and behave in order to stay in step with the will of God. This is a church that is in a process 
called sanctification. In today's passage, we're going to see two men. Men of God whose individuals' wills are, are confronted with the will of God. Both these men are challenged to align their wills with that of their Savior. Challenged to start thinking and acting in accord with the will of God before their own. To, be, to subject their own wills to His. To be sanctified a little more today than they were yesterday. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 1. Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 1. Let's stand up for the reading of God's Word. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias! And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. The reading of God's Word. Thank you very much. Go ahead and be seated. The first person we see in this account is that of Paul. Paul, Saul, same guy. Uh, Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Greek name. Please forgive me if I interchange them. So Paul runs into this conflict of wills with God in which he thinks, that's totally different than what I thought. That's not the way that I thought it was supposed to be. Not the way that I thought it was supposed to go. That's not what I thought you wanted, Lord. Or, Or not what I was taught about you. Paul honestly thought that he was serving God. 
in everything that he was doing. In, in Paul's paradigm of faith and life, he was doing the right thing by persecuting the church. He was eliminating the way, verses 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This new faith in a false messiah who is taking Jewish people away from their traditional faith, their traditional way of life. This shouldn't be. He was abiding by the law, too, wasn't he? He was abiding by both the Jewish and the Roman law. He was appropriating the proper papers. Say that three times fast. Appropriating the proper papers to, to continue his pursuit legally, wasn't he? He wasn't going outside the bounds of the law. He was no criminal, at least not from his perspective. He was upholding the Old Testament law of God, not realizing its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Paul thought that he was a zealous servant of the Lord God as God had chosen his people, Israel. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, If anyone, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh... I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He was a law-abiding man. Perhaps he saw himself as Phineas in the book of Numbers, who drove a spear through a man of Israel and a, a woman of Midianite, a Midianite woman. And, and by doing this, Phineas stopped a plague that God had sent upon Israel for their infidelity towards him. Phineas was zealous for God and his people, and Phineas was rewarded for it. Or maybe Paul felt like Elijah at Mount Carmel when the people finally admitted that the Lord, he is God. And Elijah said, slaughter the prophets of Baal. So Paul is just zealous for God. As learned as he was in Scripture and as intelligent as he was, flip over to Acts chapter 22. Keep a finger where you are over to Acts chapter 22 and leave a finger there at Acts 22. We're going to go back there a couple times. Acts chapter 22, verse 3. Paul expresses something here about himself. Acts 22, verse 3. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. As educated and, and zealous as he was, he had not yet made the connection or gained an understanding of how Jesus actually fulfills that law, how the Old Testament points toward Jesus as the Messiah and all the things that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The tradition, he, he would have been brought up 
not only with the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, but also with the traditions and the Talmud, all of these extra laws and regulations to help keep people from breaking the law of God, the Old Testament. He would have been brought up with ideas that painted the Messiah as a great political leader and a a war hero who would free Israel from the domain of anyone else who would like to rule over them. Taught these things by his parents, his teachers, the religious leaders, as if they were the very word of God. Necessary for righteousness before God. And sometimes when we get an idea in our head, when we've been taught something by a trusted leader, somebody that we admire, it's really hard to get that out of our heads, isn't it? It's really hard to just dismiss that. So God steps in and he opens Paul's eyes to the truth. Acts 9.3 Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Soul, soul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. God interceded with his word. And Paul begins confused, doesn't he? Lord, who are you, right? Uh, There's this flash of light, and in chapter 22, again, verse 6, he describes this light as otherworldly. He knew this was an act of God. Acts 22, 6 says, As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. It was noon, the sun was at the high point, bright sunny day, and this light was brighter than the noonday sun. It was that noticeable, it was that distinct. He knew it was an act of God. And so, in Paul's mind, I'm sure he's wondering, and he's confused. The first words we see are, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I'm sure Saul in his mind is sitting there going, persecuting you? This is, this is an act of God? This is God talking to me? I'm sure of that. Uh, how can I be persecuting you? I'm, I'm, I'm doing it. No, no, I'm working for you. So he says, Lord, who are you? And he finds out it's Jesus. Everything he thought he was doing, everything he, he considered, every, everything he was pursuing and God comes to him and says, why are you persecuting me? Complete opposite of what Paul was thinking. Complete opposite of everything Paul was trying to live out. His zealousness for God and upholding what he considered to be the truth of the law. Paul soaks all this in and is humbled. Verses 8 and 9. Saul rose from the ground. Although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. His mind blown. He is overwhelmed. What have I been doing this whole time? How does my life fit in with this new perspective from God's word? He's so overcome that he finds himself in a fast, not eating nor drinking for three days. 
pondering, considering, meditating, praying. Verse 11, when God is speaking to Ananias, the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. As God shifts Paul's philosophy, his his way of thinking, his paradigm of life and faith, to align with God's paradigm and not the traditions or the preferences or the views of men or those around him or his respected teachers. Understanding then how all this aligns with the word and the will of God, Paul begins to walk in a new obedience to the Lord, doesn't he? He he sets aside his old way of thinking, and then verse 18, and immediately something like scales fall from, fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. He rose, was baptized, taking food, he was strengthened. He started to get up and walk with this new paradigm, this new way of thinking. Have you ever thought or, or lived according to something different than what God tells us in his word? Even though you've read the Bible many, many times, maybe you've had some great teachers of God's word, and I'm sure you have, because I know they were here before me. Is it possible that we have or have had a way of thinking that is opposed to what God tells us in Scripture? A way of thinking in which we think we are serving God by walking this way or talking this way or, or living this out, when in all reality we're walking in our own ways and our own thoughts. There, there are those who prefer certain forms of worship, aren't there? Contemporary is the only way to go. It reaches out to the people. We've got to do everything contemporary. It's got to be as contemporary as possible. Got to have the laser light show, man. And we exalt that as if it's more righteous than other forms of worship. And yes, I'm going to pound this into the ground until that which divides us dies in our hearts. And we become unified in Christ and in Christ alone. We should be more than able to come together and worship God as a family. And I praise God for those who have heard this from the book of Acts and have come to me and talked with me that their hearts and their minds are considering, they're thinking, they're letting their hearts be changed. Praise God for that. Because we read in God's word in, in Colossians chapter 3.16 it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing each other in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. All of it, together, one family, united in Christ. Maybe it's for you, it's something else. Maybe that isn't one of the things on your hearts. Perhaps we walk around in zealous pride for God, and and we hate those who hate him. When we see people saying stuff against God, we're like, you know what, you're going to get yours. One day you're going to get yours if I'm not the one who gets to give it to you. Yeah, been there, done that. And then we read in Matthew, you've heard what it was said. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So... I should love those who hate you? Yeah. Or have you checked your theology lately? Where did I get my eschatology from? Where did I get my view on end times events and and the chronology of those things? Why am I a staunch Calvinist? Or why am I a freedom-loving Armenian? Armenian? Armenian. Oh, I can't believe I messed that one up. My apologies to anyone who's Armenian. And that's purely a hypothetical question, either one of those. Where do we get these ideas? Did did my biblical theology, philosophy, ideas, and traditions come from my parents or a trusted teacher or pastor, or did it come from the Word of God? Am I willing to admit there's some gray areas where I can't just stand on those things as if they are absolute? And there are some absolutes that I better not let go of? that are not negotiable? Jesus Christ's death on the cross for our sins in our place, not negotiable. Jesus Christ being the only way, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Not negotiable. Where do we get these ideas? Were there three kings at the manger when Jesus was born? When we stand so firm in our beliefs, is it because we've heard it from God or from someone else that we love and respect? I'm not saying that those we love and respect and wonderful teachers of God's word aren't to be loved and respected. But God's word should take precedence over anything you hear from here. Anything you hear out of my mouth. Paul had been taught by the wise and honored Gamaliel. We saw him back in Acts chapter 5, and there was a great amount of wisdom in this man, in the way he addresses the Sanhedrin. If you want to go back and read that sometime, Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel was a wise teacher. And yet we can see that Paul, as his student, walked in, in direct opposition to the will of God, didn't he? Pastors and respected teachers are a good thing in as much as their words adhere to the word of God. God's word alone is the litmus test of our will to align with his will. No tradition, no church culture, no personal preference. I've seen far too many people commit what I would call spiritual murder when they tell another, you should not wear that to church. Or take that hat off in the sanctuary. We end up teaching our children that that their righteousness and their holiness are found in what you are externally instead of what you are, who you are internally and how you walk with Christ. It's more about the hat, whether it's forward or backwards. If you wear it with a flat brim or rounded, that was for my son. 
Should be rounded, by the way. Or, or, or not only do we teach our children those things, maybe this or that person no longer feels loved or, or cared for by Christ as his representatives, as his ambassadors lay these things upon them over a piece of clothing. One could say that it was the word of God, Jesus Christ himself, that caused Paul to see that as much as he may have felt and thought that he was serving God by persecuting the church, he was actually walking opposed to the will of God. God speaks to us through his word, doesn't he? Through his word and through his spirit's guidance. And we need God to open our eyes constantly to this day, to our dying day. We can never grow old enough that we become stagnant and, and think, I've got as much as I can get. Now it's time for me to stop. No, we need to continuously glean new truths from God's word. Not anywhere else, not anyone else. From God's word. Because I tell you what, I am not going to stop being sanctified until the day I'm dead and I'm made perfect. How often do we check our will against the word of God? How often do we take a thought capture and research it through scripture to be sure that my own thoughts actually line up with God's own thoughts? If we want to walk with God, we need to be humble enough to accept when we are wrong and humble enough to change and align our will with the will of God when we see it. We, we see this humility in Paul as he goes into a fast for three days. He was without sight and neither ate nor drank. He surrenders himself to the will of God when he realizes just how wrong he had been. And sometimes when we're confronted by the will of God, God did not, does not give us easy choices, does he? Whereas Paul was in that place of, that's totally different than what I had thought. Ananias is in that all-too-common state of, I don't want to, Lord. I just don't want to do that. I see what you're saying, but I don't want to. Ananias was a disciple. Verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to this disciple. What does Paul say about him in chapter 22? Chapter 22, verse 12. Paul calls him, he says, and one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me. Ananias was well thought of. He was a devout man of God, a disciple of Jesus Christ. He was walking with Christ. He loved the Lord with all of his heart, and Christ comes to him with a mission. And Ananias says, whoa, Lord. Let me explain to you exactly why I should not do this. Verses 13 and 14 in our passage today. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Let me tell you something, God. You might not realize this, but instead of seeing Paul through God's eyes, he saw Paul through what he had heard from others. Instead of seeing God's possibilities, Ananias pigeonholed Paul in his past. 
Do we ever find ourselves confronted with something that we need to do for the sake of Christ, but we just don't want to because it's uncomfortable or difficult? But Lord, we, we open the Bible, right? Sorry, I jumped ahead of myself a second there. We open the Bible, and we read Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, and it says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And we say, But Lord, here's a dozen reasons why I shouldn't do it. I am not gifted with evangelism. I am not a good speaker. I can't go out late at night. You know, allergies, that kind of thing. And then we we pray, and we, we think to ourselves, I think he bought it. And then we open the Bible again the next day and we flip open to Acts chapter 1. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Fill the gap. That's what God's word tells us to do. But I don't want to. It's hard to share the gospel. Yes, it is. Doesn't change God's will, does it? Maybe you don't have the gift of evangelism as some do. But you have gifts given to you by God that can reach into certain people's hearts, don't you? You can reach people's lives that I will never even touch. And the same goes for anybody in here. You have your soil, your sphere of influence lives. Use it. Because my excuses don't change God's will or his word. And I need to be humble enough to align my will with his own, to adjust what I think to match what he thinks, to be willing to take any bit of theology that I have and be sure that it is in the word of God and not just something that I think or something that I was taught or something that I was told, but that it is from the mouth of God. God calls us to change lives with the promise of perfect eternal life to come. Not necessarily perfect sanctification right now. We need to continue walking in that process. Not necessarily comfortable lives right here and now. Sometimes we need to commit ourselves to doing the will of God, whether or not it's comfortable or something we want to do. Because if we align our will with the will of God, perhaps we'd see some amazing things happen as we become instruments for the gospel in the hands of God. Maybe we would see some wondrous and amazing things happen right here in this church body. Maybe we would see new life, eternal life, come into someone's heart, transferring them from death to life, from darkness to light. Wouldn't that be amazing? Rebirth, joy in Christ, just as Philip saw when he shared the gospel in Samaria, and there was much rejoicing in that place. Maybe we could be like Ananias because Ananias humbled himself to do as God told him to do. He released Paul upon the world. Paul, who planted numerous churches. Paul, who wrote a majority of the New Testament. 2,000 years later, this one step of humility for Ananias being obedient to the will of God is for our benefit and the benefit of the world. And and you'll notice that Ananias didn't just lay his hands on Paul and be done with it, like, okay, here, dude, God told me to do that and I'm done. No. 
Ananias walks up to Paul and he uses a very special word. Brother. He actually walked in obedience to God. As he as forgiveness poured out of his heart for probably one of the worst men against the church that ever lived. And this one act of humility, of forgiveness, of graciousness, is for our good. How many books of Paul do we study? The very word of God written through him to us. If we would align our will with God's, we would be given anything we need to to accomplish what God has given us to do. Paul received the Holy Spirit, regained his sight, and was strengthened. Verses 17 to 19. So Ananias departed, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. He rose, was baptized, taking food. He was strengthened. He was given everything he needed to accomplish everything he did. The writing of those 13 books of the New Testament, the the planting of these churches, the sharing of the gospel before common men and kings. Paul received that Holy Spirit. Not that he received everything he wanted, Paul still had a thorn in his side that he tells us, tells us of in 2 Corinthians 12. But even that was a gift from God, wasn't it? As it helped to give Paul proper perspective and a reliance upon God. We need to strive to know and discern God's will from his word. Not allowing our traditions or preferences to cloud our judgment. And then to, to live it out to live by God's paradigm before our own, not just acknowledging his will, but humbly applying it to our lives, letting God shift our paradigm of life and faith. It won't be instantaneous. It's all part of the sanctification process that we are all in to this very day, no matter how old we've gotten. We need to continuously take our thoughts, beliefs, and theology capture being sure that they line up with God's thoughts and will. Let us be humble enough to admit when we need to change our ways, thoughts, philosophies, theology in order to align our will with God's own. Let us be prepared and committed to be used by God as we continue to grow and mature in our walk with Christ throughout our lives here on this earth. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that we here at Alden Union will be blessed and filled with your Holy Spirit. Lord, that we would listen to that same Spirit in our hearts. Father God, that you would carry us as tools in your toolbox to be used at your will. Not trying to be something we aren't, but Lord, being exactly who you've created us to be and use where and when you've placed us. Lord God, help us to see your word and to acknowledge your word and to discern from your word the truth, to be able to differentiate between a tradition and a preference and an absolute truth from you, and to walk in those things. Help us to walk in that together as a family in Christ, 
according to your will. We pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.